welcome everyone to Understanding the I Am That Is You podcast. Yay! Hey everybody, it's your girl Wynn Ruffin, and I pray all is well with everyone. And your hearts and minds are full of love, joy, and compassion for all God's children and all God's creation. In honoring the spirit of the living God within us, our mighty I am presence, and in respecting our gift of life, let us also show that same respect and love to all life at every opportunity given us while we are present on this earth. Because in the grand scheme of things, and when all is said and done, how much we sincerely love all God's children and all God's creation matters and will come back to us. Amen. Give thanks and praises for love and light, and y'all be loved. The resuscitation of man from the dead and his entrance into eternal life. That man is a spirit in respect to his interiors, means in respect to the things pertaining to his thought and will, for these are the interiors themselves that make man to be man, and such a man as he is in respect to these interiors. When the body is no longer able to perform the bodily functions in the natural world that correspond to the spirit's thoughts and affections, which the spirit has from the spiritual world, man is said to die. This takes place when the respiration of the lungs and the beatings of the heart cease. But the man does not die, he is merely separated from the bodily part that was of use to him in the world, while the man himself continues to live. It is said that the man himself continues to live since man is not a man because of his body, but because of his spirit, for it is the spirit that thinks in man, and thought with affection is what constitutes man. Evidently, then, the death of man is merely his passing from one world into another. And this is why in the word, in its internal sense death, signifies resurrection and continuation of life. There is an inmost communication of the spirit with the breathing and with the beating of the heart, the spirit's thought communicating with the breathing, and its affection, which is of love, with the heart. Consequently, when these two motions cease in the body there is at once a separation. These two motions, the respiration of the lungs and the beating of heart, are the very bond on the sundering of which the spirit is left to itself and the body being then deprived of the life of its spirit grows cold and begins to decay. This inmost communication of the spirit of man is with the respiration and with the heart, because on these all vital motions depend, not only in general, but in every particular. After the separation, the spirit of man continues in the body for a short time, but only until the heart's action has wholly ceased, which happens variously in accord with the disease condition that causes death, with some the motion of the heart continuing for some time, with others not so long. As soon as this motion ceases, the man is resuscitated, but this is done by the Lord alone. Resuscitation means the drawing forth of the spirit from the body, and its introduction into the spiritual world, this is commonly called the resurrection. The spirit is not separated from the body until the motion of the heart has ceased, for the reason that the heart corresponds to the affection of love, which is the very life of man, for it is from love that everyone has vital heat. Consequently, as long as this conjunction continues correspondence continues, and thereby the life of the spirit in the body. 
How this resuscitation is affected has both been told to me and shown to me in living experience. The actual experience was granted to me that I might have a complete knowledge of the process. As to the senses of the body, I was brought into a state of insensibility, thus nearly into the state of the dying, but with the interior life and thought remaining unimpaired, in order that I might perceive and retain in the memory the things that happened to me, and that happened to those that are resuscitated from the dead. I perceived that the respiration of the body was almost wholly taken away, but the interior respiration of the spirit went on in connection with a slight and tacit respiration of the body. Then at first, a communication of the pulse of the heart with the celestial kingdom was established, because that kingdom corresponds to the heart in man. Angels from that kingdom were seen, some at a distance, and two sitting near my head. Thus, all my own affection was taken away, although thought and perception continued. I was in this state for some hours. Then the spirits that were around me withdrew, thinking that I was dead, and an aromatic odor like that of an embalmed body was perceived, for when the celestial angels are present everything pertaining to the corpse is perceived as aromatic, and when spirits perceive this, they cannot approach, and in this way evil spirits are kept away from man's spirit, when he is being introduced into eternal life. The angels seated at my head were silent, merely sharing their thoughts with mine, and when their thoughts are received, the angels know that the spirit of man is in a state in which it can be drawn forth from the body. This sharing of their thoughts was affected by looking into my face, for in this way in heaven thoughts are shared. As my thought and perception continued, that I might know and remember how resuscitation is affected, I perceived the angels first try to ascertain what my thought was, whether it was like the thought of those who are dying, which is usually about eternal life, also that they wish to keep my mind in that thought. Afterwards, I was told that the spirit of man is held in its last thought when the body expires, until it returns to the thoughts that are from its general or ruling affection in the world. Especially was I permitted to see and feel that there was a pulling and drawing forth, as it were, of the interiors of my mind, thus of my spirit, from the body, and I was told that this is from the Lord, and that the resurrection is thus affected. The celestial angels who are with the one that is resuscitated do not withdraw from him, because they love everyone, but when the spirit comes into such a state that he can no longer be affiliated with celestial angels, he longs to get away from them. When this takes place angels from the Lord's spiritual kingdom come, through whom is given the use of light, for before this he saw nothing, but merely thought. I was shown how this is done. The angels appeared to roll off, as it were, out from the left eye towards the bridge of the nose, that the eye might be opened and be enabled to see. This is only an appearance, but to the spirit it seemed to be really done. When the coat thus seems to have been rolled off there is a slight sense of light, but very dim, like what is seen through the eyelids on first awakening from sleep. To me this dim light took on a heavenly hue, but I was told afterwards that the color varies. Then something is felt to be gently rolled off from the face, and when this is done spiritual thought is awakened. This rolling off from the face is also an appearance, which represents the spirits passing from natural thought into spiritual thought. The angels are extremely careful that only such ideas as savor of love shall proceed from the one resuscitated. They now tell him that he is a spirit. When he has come into the enjoyment of light, the spiritual angels render to the new spirit every service he can possibly desire in that state, and teach him about the things of the other life so far as he can comprehend them. But if he has no wish to be taught, the spirit longs to get away from the company of the angels. Nevertheless, the angels do not withdraw from him, but he separates himself from them, for the angels love everyone, and desire nothing so much as to render service, to teach, and to lead into heaven, 
this constitutes their highest delight. When the spirit has thus withdrawn, he is received by good spirits, and as long as he continues in their company everything possible is done for him. But if he had lived such a life in the world as would prevent his enjoying the company of the good, he longs to get away from the good, and this experience is repeated until he comes into association with such as are in entire harmony with his life in the world, and with such he finds his own life, and what is surprising, he then leads a life like that which he led in the world. Heaven and Hell, by Emanuel Swedenborg, 1758 Volume 2, Chapter 1 The only designation of something approaching hell in the Bible is Gehenna, or Hinnom, a valley near Jerusalem, where was situated Topet, a place where fire was perpetually kept for sanitary purposes. The prophet Jeremiah informs us that the Israelites used to sacrifice their children to Moloch Hercules on that spot, and later we find Christians quietly replacing this divinity by their God of mercy, whose wrath will not be appeased, unless the church sacrifices to him her unbaptized children and sinning sons, on the altar of eternal damnation. Whence then did the divine learn so well the conditions of hell, as to actually divide its torments into two kinds, the pena damni and pini sensus, the former being the privation of the beatific vision, the latter the eternal pains in a lake of fire and brimstone. If they answer us that it is in the apocalypse, we are prepared to demonstrate whence the theologist John himself derived the idea, and the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented forever and ever, he says. Laying aside the esoteric interpretation that the devil or tempting demon meant our earthly body, which after death will surely dissolve in the fiery or ethereal elements, the word eternal, by which our theologians interpret the words forever and ever, does not exist in the Hebrew language, either as a word or meaning. There is no Hebrew word which properly expresses eternity, Ulam, according to Leclerc, only imports a time whose beginning or end is not known. While showing that this word does not mean infinite duration, and that in the Old Testament the word forever only signifies a long time, Archbishop Tillotson has completely perverted its sense with respect to the idea of hell torments. According to his doctrine, when Sodom and Gomorrah are said to be suffering eternal fire, we must understand it only in the sense of that fire not being extinguished till both cities were entirely consumed. But, as to hellfire, the words must be understood in the strictest sense of infinite duration. Such is the decree of the learned divine. For the duration of the punishment of the wicked must be proportionate to the eternal happiness of the righteous. So he says, these, speaking the words of the wicked, shall go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous, into life eternal. H. P. Blavatsky The Reverend T. Cerndon, commenting on the speculations of his predecessors, fills a whole volume with unanswerable arguments, tending to show that the locality of hell, is in the sun. We suspect that the Reverend Speculator had read the Apocalypse in bed, and had the nightmare in consequence. There are two verses in the Revelation of John reading thus, and the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat and blasphemed the name of God. This is simply Pythagorean and Kabbalistic allegory. The idea is new neither with the above-mentioned author, nor with John. Pythagoras placed the sphere of purification in the sun, which sun, with its sphere, he moreover locates in the middle of the universe, 
the allegory having a double meaning. 1. Symbolically, the central, spiritual sun, the supreme deity. Arrived at this region, every soul becomes purified of its sins, and unites itself forever with its spirit, having previously suffered throughout the lower spheres. 2. By placing the sphere of visible fire in the middle of the universe, he simply taught the heliocentric system which appertained to the mysteries and was imparted only in the higher degree of initiation. John gives to his word a purely Kabbalistic significance, which no fathers, except those who had belonged to the Neoplatonic school, were able to comprehend. Origen understood it well, having been a pupil of Ammonius Saccas, therefore, we see him bravely denying the perpetuity of hell torments. He maintains that not only men, but even devils, by which term he meant disembodied human sinners, after a certain duration of punishment, shall be pardoned and finally restored to heaven. In consequence of this and other such heresies, Origen was, as a matter of course, exiled. Many have been the learned and truly inspired speculations as to the locality of hell. The most popular were those which placed it in the center of the earth. At a certain time, however, skeptical doubts which disturbed the placidity of faith in this highly refreshing doctrine, arose in consequence of the meddling scientists of those days. As Mr. Swindon in our own century observes, the theory was inadmissible because of two objections, first, that a fund of fuel or sulfur sufficient to maintain so furious and constant a fire could not be there supposed, and, second, that it must want the nitrous particles in the air to sustain and keep it alive. And how, says he, can a fire be eternal, when, by degrees, the whole substance of the earth must be consumed thereby? The skeptical gentleman had evidently forgotten that centuries ago St. Augustine solved the difficulty. Have we not the word of this learned divine that hell, nevertheless, is in the center of the earth, for God supplies the central fire with the air by a miracle? The argument is unanswerable, and so we will not seek to upset it. H. P. Blavatsky The I Am Discourses, Volume 15 Beloved Hearts of Detroit, I bring you greetings from heights of purity and love and happiness. I trust you will come closer and closer into the great powerhouse of our use of the sacred fire and the awareness of our presence with you. Tonight, I want to bring to your attention again, certain activities of the angelic host that you are privileged to have that you will require as time goes on, and that are ready awaiting an opportunity to bring their blessings to you in the world. Ordinarily, in your experience of life, as you go through a day's activities, you feel as a rule that you, as an individual, are alone. It would be well if you would remind the outer self, several times a day, that the higher mental body stands above you, sometimes very close when your adoration is going to the I Am Presence and to the Ascended Host. The angelic hosts are ready to accompany you in your outer service of life, and to draw around you that which you're going to require in your association with your fellowmen, and give you help to give you the power by which you not only master conditions, but by which you attain within yourselves a greater expansion of the sacred fire, to make you more completely aware of God's master control of all in this world. At first it begins in small things. You'll have this and that accomplishment, and you're very happy. But you do not always give recognition to the inner power that has enabled you to accomplish what you desire. If you can remember, and you can if you so command it, to acknowledge always your beloved I am presence first whenever you accomplish something successfully, and then give acknowledgement to the angelic host, 
who at the inner level are always assisting in every constructive activity of life. You do not quite understand but in a small way how closely the angelic host are operating or assisting you in any constructive accomplishment. Now those of the angelic host who have never embodied are, of course, under our direction. They wait for our direction to come and give assistance. But those who are ascended beings, seeing your effort to hold to the light and bring forth that which blesses life, are also always awaiting an opportunity to pour forth through you, the radiation into outer physical conditions that not only makes your pathway easier, but anchors in and around you more of the substance from the ascended master's octave, which, as time goes on, is built into that which will one day be your world of manifestation. Beloved Saint Germain Now the angelic host, I'm speaking of those who are not yet ascended, handle great streams of cosmic light substance and draw it from time to time in concentrated action, wherever it is possible to hold protection for that which is constructive. Now you might say to me, well, why can't they always hold protection for that which is constructive? Because mankind, I am speaking of individuals, who by conscious command and conscious choice select to do a certain thing in life and go into that to accomplish it without ever giving it recognition, to either the mighty I am presence or God, as the outer world knows it, or to the angelic host who are the beings provided by the cosmic law, to help the outer self, do what is right. That is why there has been down through the centuries a certain acceptance of the angelic host by mankind of a guardian angel, in rare occasions of great danger, crisis, something of that sort. But if human beings only knew what they could have, only knew what the angelic host could do for them by accepting their presence with you at all times, your pathway would be infinitely easier, and what has been human struggle in the past would be joyous activity and victorious accomplishment always. Now, the angelic host are not concerned with simply gratifying mankind's desires, not at all. Their service is to expand the sacred fire of their love to life. Wherever they are recognized or called into assistance and loved and given conscious acceptance, they will always pour forth through you their expanding sacred fire love, and it will always produce perfection and protection for you. So, the gift they have to give you is that which unascended beings cannot give you. And if you care to experiment with my violet flame angels in this respect, I think you will have some very delightful experiences. Beloved Saint Germain